boys and girls, how are you doing? My name is Gregory Ball, and welcome to another episode of Good Trouble. And today, I have an incredible guest. This is somebody who, if you are active in the city um, in any way, you are probably going to see her smiling face at, at an event where there is some joy or some folks gathered. She is somebody who I who definitely is really fallen in love with the city of Boston, I'll guess, and she'll tell us a little bit more about that. But our guest today is a correspondent for NBC10 Boston. She is a social media producer over at NBC10. She is also the co-host of The A-List with Sherrod Blakely and Gary Washburn, which is an incredible sports podcast that's based here in the city of Boston, talking about all things Boston sports. And then also, before she got into all those wonderful things, you know, of late, she's also a graduate of BC. So she's, her love affair and her connection to Boston has been for a while. <laughs> and I did not know this. I learned this in my research. She has a letter in women's basketball because of her connection to the team. So ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> welcome Kwani Lunas to Good Trouble. What a great introduction. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being here. So listen, I, I'm fascinated by this letter in basketball. How did you get a letter in basketball? Yeah, actually, if this was visual, then people could see that I have like, it's a number 15, but that's just because that's the year I graduated Boston College. But I managed the women's basketball team for three of my four years there. I was hanging around the female basketball players for like my freshman year. And at one point they're like, you're around this so much. Why don't you just work for the team? And I had no idea that a college student manager position existed for D1 sports. So I had a chance to work with the team. I would be on the road with them and responsible for making sure players were on the bus, making sure the uniforms were there. Sometimes coach would throw me into drills, which is crazy, but it was a really fun experience. Like if I could go back, just get it. We, every once in a while we get a private charter flight and I'd be like, all right, we're living the life right now. So it was a really fun college experience because of that. Wow. See, now, now I'm, now I'm thinking you got a, like a wicked jump shot. I'm thinking you got you Look, I did have a pull-up jumper in high school, but it clearly okay. wasn't for college. <laughs> nice, nice. So and I'm short, so. Well, listen, that doesn't mean anything. Fair, Because if you can shoot, you can shoot. True. I, just, I wasn't shooting at a D1 level. I'm not even going to gas myself. <laughs> 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 so listen, most I know that people have seen your face. Obviously, they've seen you as as um, a co-host on or as a correspondent on Hub Today. They've seen you all over NBC. You you've covered stuff about Embrace Boston, which we appreciate greatly. But they may not necessarily know a little um, your story. I know you came you you grew up in Jersey, right? Yes, I'm a Jersey girl. Grew up there. Ended up going to BC, like you mentioned. Uh, I, it was the best school I think that I had applied to, but also when I visited the campus, it really did feel like home. And I know that sounds so cliche a lot of times, but one of the things that comes to mind was actually losing my passport on campus. No idea what it was. Obviously, that's a piece of information that you freak out when you lose. And I'm still in high school at this point, but someone found the passport, was able to get in contact, I think with BCPD, and they like returned it within maybe 24 hours. So Having that experience as a high school senior visiting a campus, I was like, this is a place where I know I'll feel safe, even though I'm miles away from home. And obviously the rest writes itself, but it was definitely a moment where I was like, okay, this is the school that I need to go to other than the academic accolades and 
all the other things they brought to the table. It was just that sense of security in mm-hmm. a place that really was unknown. Well, now, what what was, you know, I know that a lot of the work that you've done, like we talked about your, you being a co-host of the A-List, mm-hmm. and a lot of the work that you've done initially, um, and it, well, not even initially, just continuously has been around the world of sports. Kind of what what kind of got you um, going down that path? You know, I know, I know the journalism and the sports. Where, how did all that come together? Yeah, the sports was, I think, an extension of my love of basketball. I mentioned being the manager at BC, but before that, I played in um, in high school. But also, me and my dad and my brothers would pay, play every Saturday, growing up in Jersey. So that was part of our routine. We'd walk to the park. We had a park near our house. We had one that was a little further in like a more affluent neighborhood. So every once in a while we walk there a little, you know, take the little extra walk just to have like a more quiet and available court. But it was just a part of my family to a point where I was like, I don't see my life without basketball. And I didn't really know how that would play out to be honest, but I just always knew in the back of my mind, like basketball is something that I really enjoy. The college manager thing, like I mentioned, that was a surprise. So the fact that that even happened was already like, oh wow, basketball clearly does need to be a part of my life. Fast forward through like, I think junior year of college, I had told Steph Tanera, she was the head of, I believe like communications and PR for our women's teams on campus. And I remember telling her like, I think I'm interested in working in sports, but I can't tell you exactly what that means. I just think this would be a cool career. And she connected me with a producer at WEI who actually went to BC as well and told him I was interested. And I had my first internship just like that got my foot in the door. I was there at maybe, I think the show started at 6 a.m. So I would get there like 4 or 5 a.m., ride a bike from BC to Guest Street where their studios were. And every morning I would just find the best stories. I'd be writing scripts, getting people food for breakfast, like typical intern duties. But it was honestly such a invigorating experience because I was, this is my first time in the industry and seeing how the day-to-day worked. And this is just sports radio at that point. So that's like the, the way in for me because I'm seeing like, even though it's not the visual medium that I thought I wanted, I still love this a lot. So that kind of propelled me to continue to wanting to get internships. I ended up working at Nesson as a Bruins remote production assistant, I mean, intern, which I knew nothing about hockey. I actually admitted it to the person that interviewed me, but I said, I'll be honest, hockey wasn't a sport I grew up with, but if you hired me for this internship, I promise I'll learn everything I need to know about the sport and make sure I'm one of the best interns you ever had. And to this day, I'm still in touch with a lot of the people on that production team as well, because I was like, I'm not going to embarrass myself if I get this opportunity. But I think those two opportunities set me up for just having a resume, seeing what sports was like in New England, as you know, obviously, and understanding the passion that drives fans so that I can further make sure that I'm giving the stories the way that they would want to consume it. So I think being in the city at a younger age was a great chance to just make sure I knew, like, if you're going to be in sports in Boston, you can't play around. You better know what you're talking about. Absolutely. And and it, it sounds like, you know, this, as I hear you talk about it, you just had this passion for the storytelling that was, that's essential to do it here. But you, you know, you kind of glossed over it. You were at the number one morning show on what, on the number one radio station in the market when you were at WEI because I know that sports talk is I want to say the sports talk is the the number one in the market I know Boston is a top 10 market overall but particularly Mm -hmm. in terms of radio so it wasn't a small feat 
even as an intern to be kind of at the at the at the the leader in the in the space. That's a good point. Yeah, I definitely agree. So you gotta you got listen you got you gotta say it like that from now on. Don't make it seem like talk you were just, <laughs> you weren't just bringing coffee to a couple of guys. You were at the right. number one spot doing doing <laughs> doing some serious work. That's fair. That's fair. You're right. Yeah. You're right. So I mean, so you've kind of you've gone on and you've you know you've added other other things about it. But what was it about um that storytelling? And and kind of in the that world of as you got more under your belt, where was it that made you feel like okay, I definitely want to be in front of the camera, and I want to continue to tell the stories of, of, of the world of sports. I think to the point of the title of this podcast, like the Good Trouble, I never intended to be controversial, and I don't think I am to be honest. But I understood existing in a space where historically I'm not represented is kind of controversial in a sense and I kind of borrowed that line from Ayanna Presley when I interviewed her and she said something along those lines but I realized being in spaces that I really did have to, it's the cliche of working 10 times harder to make sure that people understand you belong there I think that's what drove me to want wanting to stay in the industry understanding that there is a, man, a mantle whether you want it or not when you are a woman of color in sports a black woman in sports but I took it up because I was like, I didn't have this as much, at least, representation growing up. We had a, a lot of great Black women on air and even behind the scenes, but that pipeline can't die. So I felt the onus to, one, be a part of the industry, but also because, like you said, the, the storytelling aspect of wanting to be in the room to be able to tell the story. And I have had the pleasure of being around the one of the most storied NBA franchises, the Boston Celtics as a result of working at NBC Sports Boston. And I will say there are a lot of times where, yes, I was the only black woman in the room, but I also understood that as a result, the questions that I asked had to be very intentional. And I had to make sure that I am asking the questions that maybe someone else in the room wouldn't, because either if you see it as a privilege or as a burden, like you have the opportunity of being in that room. If you don't ask the right questions, then what are you doing in that space? So working with, as you know, the NBA is definitely a league where there are a lot of Black men and you have to make sure that you're telling their story the best way possible. Because again, historically, they haven't been able to have people talk about them or ask them questions in the way that would be, I think, considered fair. So that's the duty of journalism. A lot of people have been guilty of not upholding that duty. So I always took pride in like, yes, unfortunately, at this moment, I may be the only black woman in the room, but I'm going to make sure the people that would generally not benefit from that, you know, that diversity in a, a locker room, diversity in media, I'm going to make sure that they at least see that I'm there and know that I'm doing the best storytelling that I possibly can. Now, has that been something that you you found, like you took, because we talk about the whole idea of being that voice in the room mm -hmm. and, and kind of taking that responsibility. Do you, is that something that you found to be fairly easy? Has it been difficult has it been something that you know how and and how does it feel for you personally do you feel nervous in those situations or do you feel like hey this is what I'm supposed to be doing I've always felt like I belonged it was one of those you hear imposter syndrome a lot and I think a lot of times it can actually be imposter syndrome sometimes it's just nerves when you really want to do something well and you're like oh man I'm a little nervous because I've never done anything at this level before but I've always known that I wanted to do this and do it the best possible way just because 
I didn't see it as a burden. It was just because one, I love this. I, I think this is, I am walking in my purpose at this point, but also I take pride in the fact that as a Haitian American, first generation college grad, like the, the, the stepping stones that I've already made for my family is one thing, but understanding that there are other young black women, other young Haitian immigrants, maybe, you know, young Nigerian immigrants where they're told like, oh, you have to be a doctor and a lawyer, but my parents, I'm grateful that they understood like, no, this is something that you should be doing. And so kind of breaking the quote generational and not necessarily a curse, obviously, but like the generational boundaries we may have put on ourselves thinking like career paths can only be two things when we're talented and intelligent enough to really break into any field. And I'm just grateful that my field happened to be aligned with something that I'm good at. And it is that storytelling journalism aspect. Yeah, I, it's interesting you mentioned that that piece about um, families wanting you to go into to be a doctor or to be an engineer. Because I've always felt like that that doesn't necessarily come from them wanting to step on your dreams. No. It comes from safety. I yep. know that if you're a doctor, you're going to make a decent amount of money and you'll be able to take care of yourself. But Thanks. once you can show that you could follow your dreams and you're not sleeping on their couch, then most family, most, <laughs> That's my, true. most most of my families and friends that I've seen <laughs> their family have been like, okay, this is good. Go ahead, keep going. That is so accurate, a hundred percent. Oh man, and but, but you know, coming from Jersey, coming here, you know, I know um, Boston has one of the largest Haitian populations in the country. I want to say we're probably third largest. So third I was gonna largest. Say, yeah, I was gonna say we're third after New York and, and Miami. Mm -hmm. um, was that a part, was that, how did that help you in terms of your transition or did that make, did, you, did that at least make your family feel a little bit more comfortable that you would, could be in community while you were here? That's not a thing that ever came up to be honest. And I'm yeah. not sure why, but I never thought about having an extended, so to speak, family here. Like when I left Jersey, I think I understood that I was really about to be on my own and Maybe that should have been a thought process of finding a community in that sense. Thankfully, one of my aunts on my mom's side had a friend that she grew up in Haiti with who lived here. So we did have, it's not like there was no one here. And my godmother also has family here as well. So we knew people, but it wasn't like I was calling them on a regular basis. Uh, my, maybe it's the stubbornness in me, but I didn't feel as though I should be asking people for help because I didn't want to necessarily be a burden. But I will say the woman that was a good family friend, every summer she would actually just let, let me leave my college stuff in her apartment instead of having to pay for storage, which it seems so minor, but it was a huge blessing at the time to not have to pay for storage for three or four months. So that was really nice. And then after I graduated, she actually let me live with her for about six months. It was my first job at WBZ. I'm not getting paid nearly enough to live in Boston. And on top of that, it's my first job. So I'm just trying to figure out, you know, what I need to do to be successful in this industry. So I don't have time to like think about getting an apartment and trying to find roommates and paying an exorbitant you know, amount for rent in this city at that. But she let me stay. She refused to take money from me, actually. I had to like sneak money in an envelope and leave it there because she was not taking money from me. Um, but it was it was good to have that community in a sense. But overall, it was more of just me figuring out Boston, who I was as an adult here, 
And then now as a result, though, I've, I've met a lot of the Haitian people that live here and they're phenomenal as I expected, but it took me a little longer to actually find the people that were here that obviously looked like me. Well, one of, I mean, one of the key parts of telling the stories of the community is being in the community. And I, I will say that you are a person, I, I talked about this at the beginning of it, uh, of our conversation. One of the things that I noticed about you is that you are outside in all, all possible best senses of the word. Mm -hmm. Like, and that's something that, I don't know whether it's because we have access through social media or that we see um, the reporters that are in, in the area being more active. Like I see you out at events, but not only things that you're covering, but I also see you out at events that you're going to enjoy. Mm -hmm. Is that something that, you know, was really important to you to be able to kind of, make sure that you were really in the community as you're telling stories to it. Absolutely. I take pride in that now too, because knowing that I'm not from here, I, I know Bostonians are very proud of their city. And obviously that took a while for me to understand, but as a result, I was like, yes, I'm not from here. I didn't grow up here, but anytime I'm telling some kind of story, I want to make sure that I would get that stamp of approval, so to speak. So I'm grateful. I have a lot of friends that actually grew up in Boston that can kind of give me some guidance when I'll ask like a random question I just, you know, try to understand what growing up in Boston is like. But to your point, I don't think you really learn anything about anyone or any subject until you're actually exposed to it. And that's why I try to find myself in rooms, honestly, that make me uncomfortable sometimes. Like I like to think that any event that I've been invited to, not obviously all of them, you have to vet them, but if it's something that I generally wouldn't go to, I'll still read the description and then make a point if I have the time to check it out and just see what the event is about because there are so many different communities in Boston that I think are untapped. I realized that there was a fashion community, which seems minor because obviously there's a fashion community everywhere, but like you don't think about Boston as a fashion hub just yet. Mm -hmm. So me being at a, you know, a fashion show in the seaport gave me an understanding of like what that community here specifically looks like. The same with music. Berkeley School of Music is obviously one of the most well-known musical schools probably in the world. And there's so much talent here, but the music community is not considered as they would be in New York or LA. So I think just going in different pockets of Boston, seeing different people, talking to people. And to your point, it doesn't always have to be a story, but it gives me a better understanding of one, what I can do as a journalist to make sure we're highlighting the right communities, but also just, again, understanding the way people move so that when there is a story, I can move the right way and move in a respectful way where they're like, oh, no, no, we trust you enough where we want you to be a part of our story and tell that story. Yeah, and how, how important is that? You talked about the trust. How important is that trust for you as, as somebody who is moving around the community? How important is that for you to be able to, to do that? Because I would imagine that you know, you need people to kind of have that connection or at least kind of have an understanding of, of your job and your intentions in order for you to be able to execute on the highest level. Trust is everything. And I think we talk about historically, again, when Black communities don't feel as though they're covered the right way. I've had people a lot in interviews through, in 2020 I was honored that I actually got to be a part of a project that we did in Boston during the protests. We basically went to as many of the protests that we could in Boston and asked people, 
just simply, why are you here? Why do you feel compelled in a, a global pandemic to come out and protest the death, the murder of George Floyd? And the answers, the variety of people that were out there were very eye-opening because they were just very honest with us about why they were there. We had, I, I remember talking to a biracial family and the mother was white. So she was still, you know, processing what exactly it is to be, means to be a mother of a black child. And that event itself maybe woke people up in a way they may have never seen before. But all to say, I interview, remember interviewing one woman, a black woman, young black woman, very fiery, like passionate about why she was there. And she said this, like, to me on camera while I'm interviewing her, she was like, yeah, and the media never covers this. And I'll kind of look at her. I'm like, you realize that this is a major outlet here in Boston. And I didn't say that to her, but I gave her this kind of look. And then she like walked it back a little bit like, oh, well, okay, well, obviously not you guys. But it was honestly a little refreshing for her to walk it back in the way that she did. Because one, it told me that historically she hasn't felt comfortable talking to the media. Understandably mm -hmm. so. But also it was refreshing for her to, in that moment, realize, oh, I actually did have a problem with media and may still, but the fact that you're here listening to me, not interrupting and just letting me tell my side of the story, I think in that moment for her, but also for me, it was a moment of realization that change is slow, but it can happen. But I think that comes with, when you talk about diversity in media, that's, these are the moments when you build trust and you're able to gain people's trust as a community because if they don't see themselves represented or even know that they could see themselves represented but not know if that reporter is going to be legitimately about their story and make sure they're telling it in the most fair way it just continues a cycle if they see other people that aren't doing this. but overall I think when they see themselves represented and they know that the story is going to be told properly that's how you continue to build that trust not only as an individual reporter but I think as a station, as a city, as a really a whole unit of journalism as, you know, the core. But I think it starts with local media and it builds its way up as people go to national entities as well. Yeah, but I feel like, I feel like it's it's interesting because I feel like, so, so you know that one of our our founders and one of, um, one of the key people that's in part of Embrace Boston is Reverend Liz Walker. And, you know, when, when Reverend Walker was on the air at, at, B, at WBZ, you know, you would frequently see her in the community at different events or whatever. And I think that what you're saying about the idea of, you know, of correspondents who are in the community, they feel like they're in, they feel like they're a part of the community. So people have the desire to talk to them. They know that, you know, if I talk to Kwani, she's going to tell the story right. You know what I mean? And that's usually what what I think many times I know for myself as a community member, one of the things that I'm concerned with, I'm not necessarily concerned with whether you're telling good news or bad news, because I don't think any any one story is, you know, indicative of of a community or a people or whatever. I think that, you know, I, I just want the truth to be told. And, and the, you know, don't. And I feel like when. I see you, see you, I see Amaka, I see you being not just people who are swooping in, going to work, and then, you know, spending all your time somewhere else or your energy somewhere else. Like, you know, I'll see you at our at our block party. I'll see, you know, I see a, a few, a few of the, the younger reporters who are just out and really living life 
as members of the city of Boston. And I think that that's essential to kind of building that trust that we're talking about. Yeah, I agree 100%. Absolutely. So for you, you know, you're over there, you're doing your thing over at NBC 10. How did you get connected with the um, with the A-list? Because that's where you get into your, that's the one space I feel like you get into your real sports talk is in, right there. Yeah, so at NBC Sports Boston, I worked with Sherrod, who was the Celtics insider there at the time. And we would always see Gary Washburn of the Boston Globe at the games. And we, obviously, in a market like Boston, there weren't that many reporters of color. So I already knew them through NABJ, which is the National Association of Black Journalists. But also, it was amazing to have two people that have been covering the NBA for over 20 years, they knew the ins and outs of basketball. And so for me, it's more of like getting a sense to soak in their knowledge. But then that also turned into a podcast because Sherrod wanted to start a podcast and he asked me to be one of his co-hosts, his co-hosts at the time, actually. And then maybe a year or two later, Gary came on board. But it was just, like you said, a chance for me to stay in sports, so to speak. After I left NBC Sports Boston, I was focusing mostly on news and now entertainment lifestyle so I didn't necessarily have like a way outlet like you said to talk about basketball on a regular basis but then once that opportunity presented itself it's become an outlet for me not only to just be in this space like you said but to learn every week that I'm on the podcast I learn from Gary and and Sherrod all the time hopefully they learn from me as well but it's a really good opportunity for me to just to chat with them and you know we're chill we we have jokes I would highly recommend if you're a basketball fan and specifically a Celtics fan and want to hear us talk about the Celtics on a weekly basis for sure but it's fun it's just a fun side gig for me at this point and and, and you know as a person who listens to it I can tell you that you are correct it is fun I feel like I feel like I'm listening to my all my smart friends talking about basketball <laughs> That's what I feel. I feel like I'm listening to my smarter friends talk about basketball and give me information that I would never be able to. Like I have all my, you know, as a fan, you just have your gut instincts or whatever. But I feel like when I listen to 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 the show, I'm listening to like real folks who love the who love the game and are definitely giving me the information about the Celtics that we need. So that that so honored to hear that. <laughs> and we try to be level headed. Like we know Boston sports fans are passionate to a fault, a great fault. Yes. Because Gary's like a hardcore, I'm not a fan, I'm a journalist. And we, me, Sharon and I are the same way. But I think us talking about sports in the most level-headed way possible, we argue every once in a while. I think fans do appreciate it because everyone does hear themselves. I think their opinions reflected, even if it's not as passionately as they would as a fan. <laughs> yeah, I definitely, th- no, I think it's fair th- to say that, and I th- and maybe it's because me personally, I do actually like that thought process and that approach as a journalist, because, you know, we have so many, you know, the beautiful thing about technology is level the playing field and it's allowed many, many people to have, have a voice. But the, the I guess the, the flip side of that is once you hear all those voices, many of them are, most of them are rooted not necessarily in facts, but they're rooted in passion and feeling. And I think that what on on the show, when I'm hearing something from from Gary or I hear something from Sherrod or from you, I know that there's a level of fact and connection and information that's, that's connected to it. And that's what takes it to another level. So it's not just, 
Like I could argue with me and my three friends or my two friends about the Celtics. Yeah. But when I when I hear you all have these conversations, I feel like I'm hearing people who really know as yeah. opposed to, you know, just me and my guests. That's a good point. Yeah. And I think that's the, the powerful part of it. So now that you know you've 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 got your, yourself in the world of sports, you got yourself in the world of, of entertainment. Um which one are you kind of leaning more towards, or do you feel like there's even the, another realm of kind of getting deeper into serious news? Um, do you feel like that's kind of what you see in the future for yourself? That's a great question, something I've been pondering over the last few months. <laughs> but the reason why I think about it so often is because I do know that sports is always going to be a part of my life at this point. Mm-hmm. Entertainment and lifestyle is not something I probably would have ever thought I'd be involved in, to be honest. And then hard news, the same. When I moved from the sports to the news side, I never thought I'd be covering hard news. I, for understand, you know, as you could probably understand it, it's just very heavy at times, but I also understand the importance of it. So now I'm at a space where I could see myself doing all three. I don't know if there's a way to do all three because one aspect is very heavy and the other two are a little more light when it comes to content and like emotional capacity as a journalist. but. I'm at a point where I'm okay with doing any of those three, if not all three, because I think I'm good at it and I enjoy it. So I'm like, why not be able to to have it all? But I think the industry is still evolving. So I don't think that role necessarily exists. It might be something that I have to create myself, but I like what I'm doing, but I, I know there's always a potential for more in a way and finding a way that could work for all three of those big categories I would be 100% down to do I think that I think you're right I think there is a space for kind of that hybrid person and you do do them all well um and I think that I can very well easily see a a show where you kind of get to exercise all those muscles in different ways you know what I mean so I think that there is the possibility for that but now that you're here in Boston you know that means you're the go-to person in terms of what's going on in the city, or do you feel like people re- regard you like that? Like, oh, you, you know what's going on. Tell me what's going on in, in Boston. That's so, so funny you said that because my friend, one of my good friends, Jasmine, she just called me out yesterday for that exact reason. She was like, yeah, my VIP friend always knows what's going on, but never wants to tell me. <laughs> <laughs> so I think people do see me as like a source of things to do because like you said, I really do be outside. But, and also I get invited to a lot of things. And of course I can't make it to everything, but I do, I'm honored that people think I'm a go-to. I have been to so many restaurants because of my job. And now I have a running list on my phone when people ask me where to go to eat. I'm like, all right, what cuisine are you looking for? And that's where I start because I have so many places written down. So I love that I can give people recommendations now because seven years ago when I graduated or eight years ago, whatever it's been, I could not be the first one to tell. All, all I had was Slaves and Daryl's for you. Like mm. the, the two go-tos when people ask me where to go to eat. But now there's so, I mean, there always was, but there's so much food and culture in Boston that you really can find whatever you want here. Event-wise, there's a lot of things to do. There's a lot of venues now just for like activities, which I think is great as well. Like not everyone wants to go to a club. So where can you go otherwise? And I think Boston's done a good job of cultivating that. I just I hope that obviously that there'll be more. There's always, again, room for improvement, but 
as of now, I think there are a lot of things to do, and I, I think I know a good amount. So if you need recommendations, you, you know where to go. <laughs> oh, okay, well, let's, you know what? Now that you said that, where are, if you had to, if somebody's coming from out of town and they're coming to experience Boston, where are the places that you're going to tell them if they want to experience Boston or Black Boston? Oh, Black Boston. Okay, for, well, for food, there are so many places. So I, would, I won't even just pick one, but there are a lot of great places. As you know, you know the newest one is Grace by Nia. There's actually a place in Southie, funny enough, called Hunter's that has honestly some of the best soul food that I've had. The head chef there is Black as well. So food-wise, I could go on, honestly. But I think for one, it would you would do the touristy thing. Go to the Common. Go to like the Freedom Trail and stuff like that if you're like a historical buff. I think for Black Boston, obviously like Nubian Square is where you want to go to like see community. Um, and I know tourism wise, that may not be a place that people advertise, unfortunately, but I don't see why not because it's always vibrant. There's always something going on on the weekends, especially when the weather's nice. There's always some kind of event or a block party or, you know, something to do that can get you out of the house. I personally do love the seaport just because I like being by the water. That's obviously like, not Black Boston, but that's a place I definitely recommend maybe like getting dinner there or going for a walk by the water. Uh, there's so many things to do. I don't know what else. Like it depends on the person um, activity wise, what they want to do. There's like bowling, there's golfing now, there's like indoor, indoor darts. There's a ping pong spot that I like to go to as well. So I like that there are a lot of um, activity based places here as well. I could go on, honestly, but yeah, it's it's good. It's good to see that there's that diversity, like you said, that it's not just the nightclub experience. If you don't want yeah. to dance, if you're not a dancer, there's still things that you can go and do. And I think that, you know, it's interesting. I think that we're kind of getting to a point where we're trying to break people, and meaning us as a city, we're trying to break people out of the thought process that, you know, you can only go to these certain places or. Like I, I find myself, and this has kind of always been the way I've carried it. Like I go everywhere. So, you know, one day I might be over by, um, I might be over in Austin. One day I might be at the seaport. Another day I'm in Dorchester. You know, I mean, there's there's something in, I think in just about every neighborhood that is is worthy of, of checking out. I agree with that. And I, I want to make a point to continue to go to different neighborhoods for sure. Cause I, like you said, everyone brings, something to the table the north end you want good italian food you can step into any restaurant and the food's gonna probably be bomb like i i love that about boston that when you go to a different neighborhood you're gonna find something to do no matter what so agree with that too absolutely absolutely so for you you know we talked about kind of the future a little bit where do you do you i feel like I, i'm you know and maybe this is me kind of rooting for this but i can see you being a staple in Boston for a long time. I don't necessarily, I want you to, I know that generally your business people move and they jump around and kind of stuff, but I, I feel like you're you're similar, you and Amaka kind of are similar in that you kind of almost ingrain yourselves in the community. So I, you're similar to, to Reverend Liz, like Reverend Liz was like ours, you know what I mean? She, you know, mm -hmm. she's one of our folks. And even to this day, like I remember being really, really young and seeing her on television on the on the six o'clock news i feel like you the two of you all you know both kind of have that similar energy not that i would want you to not have opportunities but i like <laughs> yeah. you know i feel like y'all are so you're becoming ours <laughs> well i'm honored you think that i i could see that as well honestly the goal has always been to go back home i'm from new jersey new mm -hmm. york's the number one market 
for television. So it'd be really nice to just be able to drive 20 minutes or 15 minutes to go home instead of the four hours driving or train or, you know, busing, whatever the case may be to get back to New Jersey. But to your point, I understand that because the community has been very welcoming. And like you said, I have people that reach out to me now from Boston. They'll pitch me stories like, hey, I saw you did this story in this one place and I'd love for you to interview me as well. So like the fact that people do see me as like putting the culture on and, and trying to represent where I can, I do take pride in that. But I don't know what exactly the future holds, but I know that as long as I'm in Boston, I'm going to continue to take pride in being this community and covering the stories here just because people have already given me a chance and trust me in a way where they honestly don't have to. So I do, I feel like that's the bare minimum I could give back to Boston. Well, I feel like you're kind of like Marcus Smart. Like even if you leave, <laughs> you're still a Celtic. You know what I'm saying? Oh, you're still a Bostonian. Yeah. So even if you go somewhere, I feel like if you like if you end up on entertainment tonight or something like that, like I'm okay with that. Right. But we're gonna claim you just like Jersey will claim you, we'll claim you here too. <laughs> I love that. I'm definitely quoting you on that one too. I've already wrote that down. <laughs> <laughs> you got, you got that. You got that. You got that. Anybody, anybody questions that you can, you can send them to me. Right, send them your way. <laughs> oh man, this has been incredible. I appreciate you kind of have taking the time out and and having this conversation with me. And I hope that you you have the opportunity to do even more stuff over NBC Ten. The good folks over there, they've they've definitely been great supporters of Embrace Boston and you know like even you've you've held you've been on, on you know at the helm of our some of our panels and everything so I appreciate appreciate your support as well you've been you've had our back through through all of our journey it seems like as long as we've been around you've been around oh I'm honored that you think that I I'll keep doing what I can to uphold it I love that yeah. <laughs> So, let's, so I have one last question for you. So one of the things I ask people when they come on the show is, and the whole idea is kind of getting the story of good troublemakers. Who is the next person that you think from the Boston area, just in general, who would you like to see on the show? Who would you like to, who's the next good troublemaker that we should talk to? Ooh, here in Boston? Yes. It can be here in Boston or just in general. You give me both. Oh, wow. Um, I imagine you talked to Paris already, Paris Alston. I have not talked to Paris. Oh, well, she's a good a good troublemaker. Her career story is amazing. It's okay. Well. I think that would be a good local one. All right. Yeah. Will, all right. And now I'll put that on my list. I got my Sorry, list. Sorry, Paris. I know you're busy, but now you got a gig. <laughs> exactly. But this is not hard. This was this this wasn't heavy lifting, you know. It no, it nice. wasn't. It was fun. Yes, I and you're I appreciate it. about yourself, but it was it was it was like a therapy session. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, I'm glad that I'm able to pre- provide that. I, <laughs> I, now I've, I'll tell you what I've learned. I've learned that you have a passion for your job, which I already kind of knew, but I understand where that passion comes from. I understand mm-hmm. that you you were actually super humble because you didn't want to talk about how you were on the number one show <laughs> in the number one station in the in the number ten market, which is something to to, to hang your hat on. And then I found out you got a jump shot. I didn't know this. Now, now I know not to talk no trash. And- I don't look for it now. It's not there anymore. I don't know if it's still there. <laughs> All right, we're going to find out. Then maybe that'll be a video segment that we'll do of Good Trouble where we we'll go out to the court with Miss Lunas. And let's, in fact, you'll see we get you, a, you know what I mean? We get you WNBA ready. I'm and- crying. <laughs> we get you a contract with the Connecticut Suns. 
They're gonna be so embarrassed. These girls, they, they don't deserve this. All right, don't do this to them. <laughs> on, man. You gotta have some faith. You gotta have some faith. But listen, yeah. I appreciate you taking the time to talk talk with me today. I will let you uh, go. And you know, for folks out there, Kwani Lunas is, is just one of those people that you definitely should be following. Oh, that's another thing. How can people um, keep in touch with you? How can they follow you? Yes, my all of my social media handles are Kwani A Lunas K W A N I. The letter A is my middle initial. I realized that people thought I was Kwania Lunas. So ah. I should have thought that one out. I was trying to do like a Stephen A. Smith thing. It didn't work the mm. way I did. But yeah, Kwani A. Lunas on all social media platforms. If you So, okay. So now I know that I will now call you Kwani A. Lunas. Yep. <laughs> there we go. We're going we to keep, we gotta, listen, I'm, gonna, I'm here to help. If you, <laughs> you're trying to get the Stephen A. Smith um, moving, we're going to get Kwani A. If that's what it's got to be, that's what we're moving with from now okay, on. I'm with it. I'm with it. <laughs> And we're going to get you a t-shirt and everything. This is Kwani A. All right, you're hired, my marketing. <laughs> All right, well, thank you so much, ladies and gentlemen. That is um, our show for today. Um, please take care of yourselves and each other. And, you know, be on the lookout for other good troublemakers and get together and get out into the world and do some, and create some good trouble.